Let me just uh, begin this morning by thanking you for the chance to speak again. Um, I know Wes and Cindy are not here, but other members of the pastoral staff are. Thank you for the confidence that that shows in me. I appreciate it. And um, for all that this place has come to mean for Jill and I, uh, I've said this before, I know, but uh, this church was a significant part in our decision to move to Houghton and to kind of cast our lot with this people. And so this church has not disappointed us. We're so thankful for what this church is, and we're committed as a family to helping the church become even more so what God has called it to be. And if you have any doubt of our commitment, we came with four of us, and now there are seven of us. So we keep having more people to help. So, A story, as I am wont to tell. One of my roles at the college is uh, to attend the occasional district conference of the Wesleyan Church. Some of you may have been to the Western New York District Conference. Uh, but Houghton, as a Wesleyan college, sends representatives to lots of district conferences, probably nine or ten in all, every year. And uh, Steve Dunmire does most of that work for the college, if you know him. But there's only one Steve, and so he can't go to all of these conferences because some of them are scheduled at the same time. And so a few of us go to one here and there. And so I, about every year, I go to one. And, you know, we set up a table with promotional materials, and we share a little bit about what's going on at Houghton for a few minutes, that kind of thing. So this year, I got to go to the Central Canada District, which I really like, actually. Uh, if you are familiar with Canada, Central Canada District is not actually in Central Canada. It, we had to go north and east of here to Brockville, Ontario, for the Central Canada District Conference. But I think in the Wesleyan world, there are not very many Western Canada Wesleyan churches, so it's central as far as they're concerned. Uh, at any rate, uh, so this was going to be a kind of a special year for me because um, I thought I would get crafty. Because the college had paid for a car and a room, I thought, I am going to smuggle my wife along. I'm not smuggled. I didn't put her in the trunk. I just sort of said, would you, you know, would you like to come with us? It's like a, a date with me for a couple days, except you don't have to hang out with me all day because I'll be hanging with the Wesleyans. So that was kind of, so what, that's kind of what we did. Um, so we left our kids with our extraordinary live-in babysitter, Liza, and we hopped in the college car and we left child-free. And, uh, I know you guys are, sorry, children, I love you. But that child-free time was nice, you know? I mean, just one hour away, two hours away, three hours away, just began to feel sort of more and more relaxed, you know? So we drove by Rochester, we drove by Syracuse, and we were about halfway between Syracuse and Watertown when all of those relaxing feelings I had began to be overwhelmed with an awful sinking realization I had forgotten Houghton's promotional materials all the way back in Houghton. So at this point, it was about three hours away, and there was no going to the conference without these promotional materials, and there was no way to miss the conference. I mean, I thought about it. I thought about coming back and saying, Steve, the conference was great. It was amazing, you know, but <laughs> I, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. And so there was no two ways about it. We had to come back to Houghton to get the materials. So we stopped at exit 35 on I-81, Tinker Tavern Road. I felt like going to Tinker Tavern, whatever that was, just to kind of, you know. And we stopped the car. It turns out there's not really Tinker Tavern right there. I don't know what. There was nothing right there, actually. So I stopped the car. We called Steve. 
he said, I was trying to think of some creative way to solve this. And Steve's like, no, not really. And we don't have anybody else up there with materials. And so I just, we had to go back. And I, I looked over at Jill and I just felt horrible. You know that feeling like when you're in charge of something fun and you screw it up. That's what I felt like. So we, were, we had this little getaway. It was all my idea. And now we were more stressed than when we started. At least I was. And it was the, the for me, that kind of feeling is horrible. That, the, the feeling when you are on the hook, right? And there is nothing you can do to make it better. You just have to sort of turn around and take extra time, lots of extra time, and go late to your conference. So... Uh, there was one thing we did to kind of mitigate the damage. We called Liza, and we sheepishly asked if she would pile the kids in the car and meet us up in Rochester anyway and save us a little bit of time. And she's like, oh, no problem. I thought, man, it's a problem. Like, I don't want to load five kids, but whatever. You know. <laughs> and she cheerfully did it, and they met us at the Target in Henrietta, just outside of Rochester. And there was Liza, big smile on her face. There were the kids, big smile on their faces, so glad to see us. In fact, we discovered that after they left, Gabriel thought we had stayed at Target for the two days that we were gone. <laughs> He's like, where did you sleep when you were at Target? He said, when we got <laughs> so. But on the way home, they stopped for ice cream because Liza's way more fun than us. So, you know, they had a good time, you know. It, and that helped, but it made me feel worse too, right? Because now I was not only inconveniencing Jill, but I was also inconveniencing Liza and inconveniencing our kids. And I was inconveniencing people at the district conference by being late. And I was inconveniencing Steve Dunmire by asking him to call some people at the conference. And all these people, just to make it worse for me, were being so nice about it. But I felt so angry at myself. I hate inconveniencing people. That's part of my personality. I like being the guy who's helpful, who doesn't need stuff, the guy who can give and give. Here's the shadow side of that secret. Part of that is because I want to be like Jesus, but most of that is because I like feeling like the good guy. When I have done something wrong, that instantly moves me from good guy to forgetful guy, bad guy, whatever. I want to set that right as quickly as possible and get back in the good guy category. I hate feeling guilty. I hate feeling like the day is ruined and it's my fault. I don't want to be in anyone's debt. I hate the thought of people looking at me and saying, he ruined it. He's demanding. Because of him, I had a more complicated day. I want people to look at me and say, he's great. He's the reason things go right around here. So when something like this happens, I am hypersensitive. I am looking for every little bit of communication from the people I'm with, verbal and nonverbal. What are they looking at? What are they thinking about? What can I get from it? What do I have to do to make things right becomes my consuming question. What do I have to do to make you happy with me? Becomes my consuming question. So I look at Jill and say that. What do I need to do to make things right? I look at Liza and think that, Liza, I've inconvenienced you. What do I need to do to make things right? And the people at the conference, what do I have to do to make things right? What do I have to do to make you happy with me now that I've inconvenienced you? What do I have to do to make you happy with me? At my worst... I live my life consumed with that question. It's the shadow side of being an extrovert. 
It's not a healthy way to live. But I suspect I'm not alone. Many of us rise and fall with what other people are thinking of us. Or at least what we think other people are thinking of us. Many of us, especially in today's political climate, are very sensitive to being criticized. If we feel like someone thinks we have done something wrong, we become very sensitive. It may or may not surprise you to know that people take this very human characteristic and import it into their relationship with God. That's certainly the case with the man in the story that J.L. read for us. He comes up to Jesus and he says, Good teacher, what do I have to do to earn eternal life? And I hope you will see quickly that that is just a dressed up version of the question that I was feeling and living towards the people around me. Jesus, good teacher, what do I have to do to make God happy? What do I have to do to make you happy? I know you're the master. I know that you're the one who can get me into heaven. So what do I have to do to make you happy? And Jesus, of course, has a very interesting response. He always does. He tells the man, follow the commandments. And the man says, I have. Jesus says, okay, one more thing. Sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor and come and follow me. We read the man goes away sad because he had a lot of, a lot of possessions. But before he says all that stuff, Jesus says something else, something we almost always forget about when we read this passage. Before he says any of that, Jesus looks at the man and says, you called me good teacher. Why did you call me good? No one is good except God. Sometimes we treat that as kind of a throwaway line. We just kind of jump past it. Some scholars think that Jesus is drawing attention to the fact that he is God. He's sort of saying, well, you called me good, and you think I'm good, and we all know God is good, so kind of picking up what I'm laying down here, <laughs> right? I'm God, right? That seems really strange to me, that interpretation. I mean, this is the Gospel of Mark where Jesus is always taking great pains to keep his identity a secret. So it seems weird to me that Jesus would, in this occasion, sort of draw attention to the fact that he is God when no one has even asked him if he's God. I don't think that's what Jesus is trying to do here. Just two chapters before this, right, Peter declares, Jesus, you are the Christ. And Jesus says, you're right, just don't tell anybody. So it would seem strange if all of a sudden he's sort of broadcasting the fact that he's God, even in an oblique kind of way. So most people don't know what to do with this line, why do you call me good? But I think it makes perfect sense. The man comes and he asks Jesus, good teacher, what do I have to do to make you happy with me? What do I have to do to make God happy with me? And Jesus essentially says, well, that's a weird question. You're calling me good. But you're asking a question that doesn't at all presume that I am good in any way. You're, you're asking me a question that doesn't presume that God is good. You're asking a question that presumes that God is sitting around looking for a reason to zap you. And you're just like, how do I get away from the zapping? 
You're asking a question that presumes that God is a puzzle to be solved. You're you're asking a question that presumes that somehow eternal life is a lock to be picked. That there's some random and arbitrary series of commandments that God wants you to follow. And if you can just do these things, he'll be happy with you. Like one of those boxes where if you move it just right, it opens. If you really believed I was a good teacher, Jesus is saying, you wouldn't presume these things. So the real question is not, what do I have to do to make God happy? The real question is, do I believe that God is good? Those of you who are married to people like me, or friends of people like me, can know how exhausting it is to be with someone who has to have you happy with them all the time. On that long ride back from Tinker Tavern Road to Rochester, I felt guilty for putting everyone out. And I wanted people's reassurance that I was okay, that they were happy with me. So you know my temptation was to look over at Jill and say things like, it's okay if you're irritated with me, or boy, you must really be irritated with me, right? in hopes that Jill would say, no, you're doing great. You know? I wanted more time in the car with you. you know? I mean, I know what to say to people like me. You know? <laughs> but the most important thing to do on that car ride from Tinker Tavern Road to Rochester and then all the way back from Rochester to Tinker Tavern Road was just get over it. Because it's really not fair to inconvenience Jill with an extra four hours of driving and then expect that she would spend those four hours making me feel better about it. Just let her read her book. Same with Liza. It's, not, it's enough that she would pile five kids in the car and drive for three hours and get them ice cream. I don't also need to do subtle things that tell her I need her to reassure me that I'm okay. So I need to deal with this feeling that's inside me. But how do I deal with it? Well, essentially, if I want to get over my need to have Jill happy with me all the time, I need to believe deep down in my guts that Jill really is good. If I believe that Jill is good, I'll understand that she wants the best for me, that she loves me no matter what. If I, if I believe that Jill is good, I don't need to make my life about how do I make Jill happy. Instead, if she's good, I can live in simple trust that she loves me no matter her mood at the present moment. But if I don't believe Jill is good then life becomes about earning her affection. How do I make you happy is the wrong question to bring into a marriage. But the question, do I believe you're good, like you promised to be 19 years ago? I need to simply accept the grace and the kindness of others. Jill, Liza, Steve Dunmeyer, the Wesleyans in Central Canada, all of them were nice to me right? And they didn't have to be nice to me. And they weren't nice to me because I was impressed. I impressed them with how good I was. They were just nice to me because they're nice people, right? And if I make the situation all about my emotions and all about my need for reassurance, I'm demonstrating to them, I don't trust your goodness enough to lay down my weapons and stop fighting for your affection. Instead, I can simply say, Thank you for being kind when I screwed up. If I can accept their grace, I show them, I think you're good. You did this for me just because you're nice. 
and I appreciate and recognize your goodness to me. Do you see, the man calls Jesus good and then asks him a question that presumes he is not good. He says, good teacher, but then says, how do I get on your good side? So Jesus says, you're asking the wrong question. The question is not, do I believe or what do I need to do to make God happy? But do I really believe that God is good? If he had believed that God was good, he may have had a question, but the question might have been very different. Jesus engages the man anyway. He says, keep these commandments. And he lists some commandments. And the man says, I've done that. I have earned your affection, Jesus. I have demonstrated my goodness. You are now obligated to reward me with eternal life. Jesus says, okay, okay, okay. One more thing. Go and sell everything you have. Give the money to the poor. Give it all up. Come and follow me. Now, at first blush, right, it may sound like Jesus is saying to the man, whoa, cowboy, you think... He didn't really say it. Whoa, cowboy. That's not the way... (laughs) If you want to make God happy, it's really hard. That's not what Jesus is saying. Sometimes we act like he's saying this, like, if you really want to make God happy, you're going to have to keep a lot more rules than you're used to keeping. Except I have this magic bullet called Calvary. And then God will have to treat you nicely no matter what because he has to. That's the loophole in the system. I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. That's a, 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 an unkind way to treat someone by sort of saying, whoa, the pile's really, you have really, you have a long way to go. You have screwed up more than you understand. Jesus looked at the man, and what's the text say? Loved him. And responded to him in a way that befitted response to a man who had asked a sincere question. Jesus is actually inviting the man to do something that would be totally normal to do if he believed that God was good. Think of it this way. What would make you sell everything you have and give the money away and run away with someone? You would if you believed that person was truly good. Let's imagine something slightly less intense. If you tell me today after church, while we're shaking hands, quick, you've got to go with me. I've got the car packed. We're going on a trip. I'll explain later. Just meet me in the car in five minutes. If you did that, my response to you would depend on how good I think you are. If I don't know you, or if I know you only by face or by name, I am not getting in the car with you. But if we are pretty good friends, well, if we're pretty good friends, I'm probably still not doing it, right? Because I don't know what you have in mind. But the point is this. The more convinced I am that you are good, the more likely I am to trust you enough to do something crazy and uh, open-ended. I am more likely to get in the car with you the better I think you are. Now, if you went even further and you told me, get in the car, we're going on a trip, we're never coming back, so sell your house and give the money to whoever, then I better be really convinced that you're good. The only reason I'm leaving everything to follow you is if I know that you're good. And so the real question for us as believers is not, hey, how much am I willing to do to make God happy? Am I willing to give up my week of vacation at the Jersey Shore to go to a Christian camp instead or on a mission trip? 
Are you willing to give up your home and go on the mission field? Are you willing to sign up to do the nursery on Christmas Eve? That really impresses Jesus. Or are you willing to teach the fifth grade boys in Sunday school with an open-ended contract? That super impresses Jesus, right? See, I bet you're not willing to do those things. So you better believe in Jesus, people, right? Because that's the only way God can tolerate you. That's sometimes the subtext that we bring to this message. So often we experience the Christian life in this way. Well, God did this for me. Jesus died for me. The Holy Spirit hangs out with me all the time, even though I'm just interminably irritating. So I guess, I guess the least I can do is to do this really difficult thing that I don't really want to do. And we call the good Christians the one who make those hard decisions more and more and more. Maybe that's not the real question. What are you willing to do to make God happy? Maybe the question is, do you believe that God is good? Because a person who really believes that God is good can do some incredible things. Things that the rest of the world would find impossible. That might sound like a cop-out, like I'm giving you a sort of get-out-of-jail-free card from taking care of the fifth-grade boy Sunday school class. That's not what I'm doing, right? I'm saying that when you know God's goodness, it will enable you to do amazing things. It will uh, tilt you toward doing amazing things, things you don't think are possible, things that are downright miraculous in this world. When you know that God is good, you can tell the truth without fear. No one does that. When you know that God is good, you can listen for the truth without fear. You can befriend those who think differently than you. You can even gulp, repent of something you used to think and change your mind and think something new. When you know that God is good, you can dare to raise a family in a world that seems sometimes like it has no future. When you know that God is good, you can choose to remain celibate for the kingdom in a world that tells you you will die without sex. When you know that God is good, you can choose to approach Scripture with an open mind and an open heart and seek to be transformed by the Holy Spirit as you read words which might be uncomfortable to some of the ideas you brought into that reading. When you know that God is good, you can tell the truth without fear and you can acknowledge that you don't know everything without fear. When you know that God is good, you can quit worrying so much about getting to heaven and you can start enjoying his love right now, right here, and start sharing it freely with other people. Is it, is it too much to say that this parable was written for us? Because I think it was. I mean, we have been trained to think that what it means to be a biblical person is that we know with ever-increasing precision what the key is to making God happy. That the essence of our religion, what sets us apart from other faiths, is that we know the secret. Like what sets Christians apart from the rest of the world is that we know the magic words to say, the sinner's prayer, and those magic words gets God on our side. And then, of course, we know that once we do that, good Christians know we keep the rules especially well. But we forget sometimes that we don't have to do anything to make God happy. Jesus didn't just come to pacify an angry God. Jesus came to reveal that the heart of the Father is pure love. And that as we align ourselves with the heart of the Father that we see in him, we come to deeply know that love for us. And so deeply do we know that love that we discover we share it freely with others. In fact, it oozes out of us, even in a hostile world. 
That's the secret we know. Not that we know the guy who tricks God into loving us, but that God has loved us all along and wanted so much to love us that he sent his only son so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, right? but have everlasting life. So let me ask you this. Why, why do we run away from that? Why do we insist on saying, I know what makes God happy? Instead of, when I found Jesus, I discovered that God has always loved me. I think the reason we run away from it is we like the idea that we earn our own salvation. We, we like that because for the same reason that I like to be the good guy in any given situation. I mean, it's fine for me to say to you, we can't earn our salvation. I mean, you can't, but I can, right? That's what deep down I want to think sometimes. That's the appeal. We all think this sometimes. And I I know this because I live in a, I'm sure that you know this too. We live in a world where people will not change their minds. Where people are so easily threatened by the idea that they're not good perfectly all the time. I have to be the guy at the college who talks about all kinds of controversial things. I got to talk about sexuality. I got to talk about politics. I got to talk about race and gender. Most people are terrified to look, really look at why they believe what they do about any of these things. Because they're afraid if they look too close, they'll discover they've been wrong. Because in their minds, it's like a a big game of Jenga. And if I pull out this thing and I discover I've been wrong about this, then maybe the whole thing will topple. And maybe I'll discover I haven't been impressing God all this time. It feels like if I'm wrong about this thing, then everything will start to unravel. Everything I know about the world will start to fall apart. Uh, All these questions presume if I have done this thing wrong, then God will no longer be happy with me. Here's the good news of the gospel. And it's so much fun to be a preacher who gets to share really good news. God loves you. Full stop. Absolutely. God loves you so much, he'll let you live with him forever if that's what you want. If you tell him you don't want to live with him forever, he'll let you do that too. He's that kind of God. God loves you more than you love your best friend, more than you love your children, more than you love your spouse. God loves you. And how do I know? Jesus. But but what if I'm wrong about this or that? Well, I mean, if you're wrong about something, get in line. I mean, if you're a forgetful person who lets people down sometimes, get in line. I mean, if you battle a besetting sin in your life, get in line. Quit hiding it from God and just get in line. You're not nearly as good as hiding it as you think you are anyway. If you're, if you're secretly afraid you have the wrong political affiliation, get in line. Join the rest of us called the human race. If you might have the wrong opinion about any of the controversial stuff I just mentioned, get in line. That's not to say these things don't matter. They absolutely matter. These issues and more absolutely matter for the direction of the church and the witness we have in the world. But we will do a better job thinking about these things if we are not all frantically running around trying to get God to love us. See, here's what I've discovered. I'm a much better husband when I'm not frantically running around trying to earn my wife's affection. I'm better at making her happy when I don't rush around and act like I have so much at stake in making her happy. I can make her happy when I understand she's a good person. 
And I have confidence in her goodness. And it's like this across the rest of my life, too. I'm a much better friend. I'm a much better pastor. I'm a much better teacher. I'm a much better person when I'm not trying to earn my way into your hearts. I'm much better at everything in my life if I'm not saying to people, what do I have to do to make you happy with me? If I think that way, then everything comes about, becomes about taking care of me. Even when I act like I'm taking care of you. And yet, so often our relationship with God gets stuck here. What do I have to do to make you happy? I hang around with enough tortured undergraduate college students who say, I just want to make God happy. I just want to do God's will. Do you know he's good? Because that's the thing. The Holy Spirit is waiting in the wings in each of our lives. When we are saying, what do I have to do to make you happy, God? The Holy Spirit is just waiting there saying, why do you call me good? Do you know I'm good? I mean, if you know I'm good, let me do my work of comfort and conviction. If you know I'm good, let me comfort you by reassuring you of God's deep love for you that will never change. But let me also show you that if you'll accept that love, you will have a tender conscience that makes you want to live more like me. You will want to show my love to the world, and you will not be defensive all the time, but you will want to listen and grow and repent and grow until you are capable of far more than you think today. You won't be afraid to speak the truth and receive the truth. In fact, if you know God is good, you will know the truth. And the truth will make you free. Let's pray together. God, how thankful we are for your deep love for us. And for the patient ways that you wait in the wings of our lives and remind us of the most needful question. Not, how can I make you happy? How can I make you happy? But do I know that you are good? And as we have sung so many times this morning, God, you are good. We look around us and we see your goodness outside, in here, in these pages, in our singing. How good you are. Help us to know your goodness so we can serve you without fear. For our sake and for the life of the world. We ask this through Christ. Amen.